Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 104. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. It's another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. On today's show, we're going to be talking about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel, and a huge thank you to all those folks who take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. If you enjoy listening in on these intel chats and aren't in our community Slack channel yet, then you should join the conversation. Much more information than we can get through on the show is being shared there, and you will get it in real time. You can join the Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. And as always for these chats, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris, what's going on? I'm doing fantastic, sir. Uh, I do not know where in the world geog- geographically all of our listeners are located, but where I'm at, it is a wonderful, beautiful 72 degrees in the middle of February. It's gorgeous outside. The sun is shining. That's the light on this side of my face. The sun is beautiful out there. So I'm in a great mood. Oh, right you know, I'm in yeah. a great mood because uh, I, I got a lot of lot of sun shining and it's a beautiful day and we got a lot of cool stuff lined up today. So before I delay too much about the weather, let's let's get into it. But before we do, I think uh, I think you've got a little a, l- a little stats for us. Yeah, I was going to bring up that I noticed this morning we have 499 users in the specific Intel channel. So with the addition of one more and it could be you if you're listening, we will hit a very cool milestone and uh, we're also currently at 1,261 for the whole Slack community. It's really cool to see so many people joining the conversation. I think I can remember when the Intel channel was, I don't want to say double digits, but very low triples, maybe even doubles. It's yeah. definitely grown over a while. But I do remember, Chris, when the the main Slack community was was much smaller. Yeah. Um, and it's great to see. Great, great, it's great to see that growth. And, and I hope that folks, you know, Chris and I always ask for feedback on this, and I always encourage folks, like, please not only just join and jump in, but also refer back or, or reflect back and be like, hey, here's this thing that, that you guys should talk about, or here's a reason why. The other thing, Chris, and I'm going to throw this out there for our listeners and, and hoping to bump that number up to 500 as well. One of the cool things that we do see when bits of Intel are shared into the Intel channel is we do get some folks offering kind of uh, what to watch out for. You know, things to look for and some details about this one, you know, such as, hey, this looks like it's impacting on-prem systems only or cloud security systems only or, or whatever it might be. And I, I kind of like that that additional little bit of insight is provided there because it's weird. Sometimes you feel like you're just kind of yelling into the ether <laughs> in an Intel channel. Yeah. But at the same time, um, a huge props to those folks who do because we always appreciate that insight. Even if it's something Chris and I don't get to talk about, it's valuable for everyone else in there. A hundred percent. I even think I saw somebody drop some detection rules in there last week just to help. I know. Yeah. I know. It's exciting, man. All right. So the first one we have today is from Zscaler Threat Labs. They're reporting on some recent campaigns, which started in February 2024, where they observed PikaBot reemerging with significant changes in its code base and structure. These new changes appear to herald the new development cycle and testing phase. What is interesting here is that the developers have reduced the complexity of the code by removing advanced obfuscation techniques and changing the network communications. Any thoughts on why they would reduce the obfuscation? It seems counterintuitive to me, unless maybe it's to make the development process easier. And then when they get the features they're working on done or whatever, they'll just re-obfuscate. 
Yeah, it, it could be. I, I did think about that the first time I, I read this article where I thought kind of like, and by the way, I, I love this. So we're recording this episode in February 2024. And I love reading a threat report that says in recent campaigns, which started in February 2024. <laughs> yeah. So like, someone's going to read this in six months and be like, oh, this thing's been around. And we were here at the beginning, right? We're like the hipsters of the Intel channel. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, this is this is one of those things where when I first read this, and I and I like, read about the deobfuscation and whatnot, I, I definitely started going down the route of like, maybe they caught the code base early on and they're like seeing, uh, you know, seeing the deobfuscated version as opposed to like seeing the obfuscated one. And, and what I mean by that is there's a, there's a, a, a zip file or, or collection of these, of these pieces of malware or these support files or whatever out there in the wild. And rather than stumble upon the obfuscated source code, right? You're stumbling upon the deobfuscated source code, which then might subsequently get obfuscated, Chris, as, as you called out. So I think that's definitely one possibility. The other one, which I, I thought of, and I don't know if it's going to land or not, but we'll see. But I, I kind of had this idea where they either have changed their malware authors so they're kind of going back to square one, you know, like let's break all this stuff down because you got to think, folks, the more you obfuscate and drop in, you know, think about any code base that you might maintain, right? The more you obfuscate or drop in all of these random pointers and runaround routines and everything like that, the harder it's got to be for sure to to track and debug this thing. I mean, I imagine they just have notepads that are just stacked <laughs> With like, okay, go to this pointer, this pointer does this, this pointer does that, blah, 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 you know? Or, uh, which is more likely, it's some sort of an automated software-driven obfuscation process, which would lead us to believe that at the earlier stages of developing this, it actually is just a legitimate, like, looking code base. The obfuscation comes after the fact. So I think it might have been earlier on in the build. Maybe someone just shipped the wrong version right. or forgot to obfuscate or something, Chris. I I, I think that might have been one possibility there. It def definitely made it easier to reverse for the uh, for the folks over here at Zscaler for sure. Um however, that being said, uh it does they do say in the article and I'm quoting here, although it appears to be in a new development cycle and testing phase, the developers have reduced the complexity by removing exactly what you said, advanced obfuscation techniques. So I'm I'm of the opinion that it was caught earlier in the release cycle than what we might expect to see. The other thing, and this might be a long shot or it might be the answer, I'm not sure, but I don't give it a 50-50. This is a 90, an 80, 80, 20. <laughs> the other thing might be, Chris, is they're they're back to kind of testing the lowest barrier, right? They're back to testing uh the, the weakest link in the chain. It's like, hey, do we need to? obfuscate this stuff that much like does it still does it still work you know it's it's one of those things where like maybe they think that the defense detection techniques have gone so far in detecting obfuscation that they can just revert back to the original <laughs> you know and, and it, it's um it's one of those this was a very classic uh it was an example i heard a lot that was delivered kind of i think in the early 2000s you know with the, the global global war going on and and you know conflict in the Middle East and everything like that. Um, they were saying that one of the ways to get around advanced detection techniques is that, you know, bad guys and, and terrorists and whatnot, were using like cell phones, like basic cell phone networks. And the takeaway there was the advanced detection techniques were so far, like looking for all this type of stuff that some of the basics 
had been kind of not ignored, but have had kind of been assumed like, ah, oh, there's no way, there's no way they're going to use, you know, this basic stuff. And I'm not delivering the right example. Obviously, you know, I think the, what I'm looking for here is they were, instead of using super advanced techniques, they would go to rudimentary techniques, what would feel like rudimentary techniques. And the thing was there, I'm going to avoid these super advanced evasion techniques, go back to something that's super rudimentary. And maybe just maybe the detection software is no longer looking for those things or it's lower prioritized that. So the other thought I had here, Chris, was malware classification. And maybe that automated sandboxing or malware analysis engine has gotten to the point where if a program looks deobfuscated, it gets a clean bill of health. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's one of those like it's so they're so used to seeing all this garbly goop that when it just is a straightforward piece of code, it's like, oh, yeah, that's legitimate because ad- adversaries don't do that. So I don't know. I had a lot of theories on this one. It's a great article, great technical walkthrough, but I really found myself kind of pondering, you know, if, if I can go back to the human side of it that you and I have talked about dozens of times, some human somewhere decided to ship this code in this format and it was either a mistake or it was intentional. So I wanted to explore both sides. If it was a mistake here might be why if it was intentional maybe it just wasn't necessary yeah and there's some other weird stuff going on with them too so for those not familiar with peekabot it's a malware loader that originally emerged in early 2023 there is a significant increase in usage of peekabot in the second half of 2023 following the fbi led takedown of cackbot quackbot i never know what to say there uh this is eh, <laughs> we know <laughs> yeah this was likely the result of a black bass the ransomware affiliate replacing quackbot with peekabot for initial access however this is the weird part. Peekabot ceased activity shortly after Christmas 2023. So I think it's good to be aware of, but I can't help speculate why their operations ceased right after Christmas combined with the big change in the code base. I wonder if the threat actors got spooked or someone's mom died. Did they take a vacation? Yeah, <laughs> I like that. You you never know, right? It might be like, hey, guys, we're going to take everyone's getting Christmas off. <laughs> Um, you know, you've, you've seen that we, we made enough money this year. Everyone's taking Christmas off. I, yeah, I think it's up in the air as to, as to what it might be. I, I, I would agree with you. There's something that happened. It's probably something more human than, than technical. Uh, I, I, I am with you on the maybe, maybe correlated, but not causated of takedowns, making other groups kind of step back from the front line a little sure. bit being like, Oh, let's cool our jets. Right. Let's just see what's happening here. Um, but that being said, I, it could have been a, a multitude of reasons as to why that happened. I would go as far as to say significantly deobfuscated code, a different approach towards delivering malware, uh, timing right around takedowns and everything like that. There's a chance that someone was like, "Hey, let's step back, let's retool, reorg, whatever it might be, and let's just kind of start over." You know, let, let's let's take what we have, save it, see what we can repurpose, and move on because. As you and I've talked about many times, there's that whole economy there, you know, and imagine you're a company competing in a space and your competitor has been taken down for performing illegal activities and you yourself might be performing some of those right now. Obviously, I'm I'm talking about malware authors and stuff here, but uh, you might want to be like, whoa, all right, let's back up a little bit and reorganize. Let's retool and and 
let's let's commit illegal activity a different way as opposed <laughs> to what led them to be taken down. I don't know. It's up in the air. It, it really depends on uh, a multitude of factors. But I will say it is more than likely associated with some sort of human thing yeah. behind the scenes that we may never know about. It's always interesting to speculate. Always. So the next one is coming to us from OpenAI. They are claiming that they have terminated accounts associated with state-affiliated threat actors. Here's a quote from the blog post. In partnership with Microsoft Threat Intelligence, we have disrupted five state-affiliated actors that sought to use AI services in support of malicious cyber activities. We also outline our approach to detect and disrupt such actors in order to promote information sharing and transparency regarding their activities. I think it's great to see this kind of proactive action being taken by OpenAI. Do you think this is something they'll be able to keep a handle on? Chris, I'm not going to lie. In the very beginning, when I first started reading these notes and you said this one's brought to us by OpenAI, I was afraid that OpenAI wrote it. <laughs> and then after reading the article, I'm still not sure as to whether OpenAI, OpenAI wrote it or not. You know, like I could almost imagine a chat GPT prompt of help me write a blog post that <laughs> that mimics me taking down threat actors, you know, only because there's so much open AI promotion sure. in there. But that being said, there's not a lot of chat GPT promotion in any event. I, I love this because I like when any technology or new technology or cutting edge technology company out there has security in mind in some way, shape or form. Right. It's, it's almost like when you hear a company come out of the gate and they're like, here's all the things that we do to prevent adversaries from getting access to our networks. And then there's some of us who are like, there's four of you. Like, what do, you, do you need to be this strict? But then that culture carries through all the way. And as open AI keeps growing, I love the fact that, you know, let's let's call it a year into their chat GPT heyday or, you know, whatever the time frame is. I feel like AI has probably had a, a year, year and a half of like super high buzz and stuff like that in any event. I love that already they're like, yeah, we're taking down nation state threat actors, right? We're taking down all these things. I think you're going to go through a list of some of them that they've taken down, but I'm, I'm, I love seeing this. I, I love seeing that they're, that they're aware of it, but Chris, I'm just going to be frank. And I'm just going to say like, there's so many ways for us to access AI resources these days. I, I, I won't lie throughout my daily like use as a user and all the various things that that I do as as part of my job and whatnot, I probably encounter seven or eight different applications that have some sort of AI tag in. And I'm not talking like right click to have AI automatically respond to your email. I'm talking prompts, like open-ended prompts that you can use to do stuff. And I'm just curious, maybe we'll know, maybe we won't. How do you go a step further and say, this user, this prompt, this feed, this whatever is being utilized by malicious threat actors, we're going to take down this thing, right? We're going to take down this particular thing because OpenAI came out and said, hey, we've terminated accounts. Yeah. I want to know how else can we go through using, like what other measures are in there to help kind of protect this? Because if I, I mean, not for nothing, but if you took down one of my emails, I'm just going to go register another one. Sure. You know, um, in any event, I'm not throwing shade. I'm happy it's happening. I actually, uh, B-Sides on Vancouver Island here where I'm located, I saw a guy give a talk on uh, prompt jacking, which I guess is like a new form of attack where, where yep. people embed, you know, malicious prompts inside of other things that are being consumed by AI to perform malicious activities. So it's this whole new world of, of cat and mouse, I guess, right? That's it, man. That's the future right there. Imagine that, right? Imagine, I mean, like, imagine that job board in some you know, black market forum or, 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 or illegal activity forum, right? It's like, Hey, 
two years ago, we needed a Jira confluence expert. And now we need someone who is an open AI prompt expert. And you're like, wait, which, what kind of career is this? All right. So I'm going to run through the five threat actors that they listed and, and go through the, the malicious activities they were doing. And the naming is something else with these guys. I think it's a Microsoft standard. So Charcoal Typhoon used open AI service to research various companies and cybersecurity tools, debug code and generate scripts and create content likely for use in phishing campaigns. Salmon Typhoon used OpenAI's service to translate technical papers, retrieve publicly available information on multiple intelligence agencies and regional threat actors, assist with coding, and research common ways processes could be hidden on a system. Crimson Sandstorm used OpenAI's service for scripting support related to app and web development, generating content likely for spear phishing campaign, and researching common ways malware could evade detection. I got to be honest, this all sounds similar to the way I use OpenAI in my Yeah, day-to-day. I was going to say, this isn't far off. I've, I've used it for these exact same purposes, too. I've actually advised people to use it for some of these purposes, like coding all day long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, two more. Emerald Sleet used OpenAI's service to identify experts and organizations focused on defense issues in the Asia-Pacific region, understand publicly available vulnerabilities, help with basic scripting tasks, and draft content that could be used in phishing campaigns. Finally, Forest Blizzard used OpenAI's services primarily for open-source research into satellite communication protocols and radar imaging technology, as well as support for scripting tasks. Man, that Microsoft naming convention is something else. (laughs) Didn't think you'd be saying Blizzard, Typhoon, and Sandstorm so much, did you? Yeah. Is there any surprise here, Matt, that like we were just saying, I think this feels like the way we would use AI in our day-to-day, except these guys are obviously doing it for malicious purposes. Yeah. The 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 tough part about this is like the combination there. So if I break these out, so let's look at Emerald Sleet, right? Emerald Sleet, uh, to understand publicly available vulnerabilities. Like that is super critical knowledge that I feel any security researcher should be able to to, to find out, to look up. Because if you're like, oh my gosh, someone says I need to go patch CVE, whatever, whatever. You're like, hey, AI, help me out. Understand what this thing is. Like TLDR this for me. That's the purpose of this, right? No issues. And then you add on that tagline where you're like, and organizations focus on defense issues in the Asia Pacific region. It's like, oh, that just soured the milk really quickly <laughs> there. You know, um, help with basic scripting tasks. Absolutely. Yes. Do it all day long. And content to be used in phishing campaigns. Oh, why did you have to add that on there? Nonetheless, I, I think and I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say the thing that AI was or open AI was looking for was like the combination, right? The correlation, the bubble graph, the Multigo graph for you Intel analysts out there of the things being searched and was able to identify with enough confidence, probably also based on metadata of the users, but also was like, yeah, one of these things by itself isn't that bad, but like open source research into satellite communication protocols coupled with scripting (laughs) tasks and phishing emails. It's like, guys, I don't want to give advice to threat actors, but good Lord, change your accounts (laughs) up. I don't know, do something different. But yeah, no surprise there on the types of stuff. That was being searched again. I think the correlative graph that OpenAI generated on the back end was probably incredible to see just on how they're using it. Um, also, the Microsoft naming convention, I think, aligns with, if I'm not mistaken, I think Microsoft's got a pretty big foot in OpenAI, I, b- I believe, don't they? I think maybe. Yeah, I'm they not might sure. have bought a chunk. I can't remember. I think they might have. Yeah. yeah, maybe. And I might be wrong about that one. I'm not sure. I'm going to look it up while you go over the next part here. But nonetheless, I'm not surprised about that necessarily. It's just what I expect to see. I didn't. Ex- I didn't get surprised to see the um you know that open ai was aware of this either right it's it's come on come on guys it's 
it's it's a if you if the if the product is free, you are the product. Yeah, they're looking at what's coming through. Okay, so uh, this one is coming to us from justice.gov. A January 2024 court-authorized operation has neutralized a network of hundreds of small home office or Soho routers that were used to commit crimes by the GRU military unit 26165, which is also known as APT-28, Sofacy Group, Forest Blizzard, Pondstorm, Fancy Bear, or Sednet. The naming conventions in this industry just never get old, Matt. It would be great if we could come up with some kind of standard that could tell us about where and who the threat actors work for right in the name. I think everybody in this industry loves to put their own spin on it, but it makes it really difficult to glean information at a glance and communicate across different intelligence ecosystems, you know? Yeah, it's it's tough. I, I will say, Chris, and we'll post this in the show notes as well, there is a spreadsheet out there, and as weird as it sounds to say that statement in 2024, there is a public Google Sheets out there that I think was put together by the folks at Nextron Systems, Florian Roth and team, nice. which actually goes through and tries to map together what's what. But yeah, it's it's all over the place. Uh, as someone who was once lucky enough to name a few pieces of malware, I probably spent more time thinking about how to put a naming convention together <laughs> yeah. than anyone ever has saying that malware combined around the world. And uh, that none, nonetheless, I, I think it's internally, it's a system that works out really well for a person or, or a handful of people or a threat intel team. But yeah, I'm with you. When it bubbles up to the surface and you're like, oh, which group is this? And someone's like, well. Yeah. If you're reading reading a report from one person versus another person, is it the same actor? You got to figure that out by getting into it, right? Exactly. Well, and and so it, the, one, the one delineator that I will draw in here is, sorry, there's two. There's, there's two delineators. One of them I think is good. One of them I think is uh, superficial. The superficial one, I'll start with that one first, is uh, marketing. And I'm not saying anything bad about marketing at all, but if you are a information security company and you have a threat intelligence team and you spend your entire time talking about someone else's naming convention, it's a little bit like, wait, why don't we just come up with our own name? You know, and and I think that's that's one side of it. In that case, if it's a carbon copy and it's like this cluster of activity plus that cluster of activity is exactly the same, but we're going to name it something different just so we can have a little more, you know, a little more color in the narrative. I, I, I tend to get a little frustrated at that. Where I do know there's a big difference though, and this is important for everyone out there in information security to understand. I know there's a lot of times where you're like, oh, so-and-so calls it this bear and so-and-so calls it that APT or whatever it might be. Here's the big difference. A lot of times, the threat intelligence and the incident response teams that feed the threat intelligence teams work different breaches. They work different breaches and different intrusions, and they do their best to try and say, hey, does this look like anything that anyone else has seen before? And is that a name that we should use? But as we know, because we've talked about on this podcast only a few dozen times, threat actors will change their tactics up. Yeah. So if Chris, let's say you and I are competing incident response firms, I work a breach and I see a set of indicators and I name it, you know, let's, let's just call it Matt one. And you see a group, you, you work another breach from the same, potentially the same threat actor, but in your breach, it is a 80% match, but the other 20% was really critical to how the threat actor did what they did, right? Let's say the phishing campaign, the persistence mechanism, and the exfiltration 
mechanism were different in yours, but everything else was exactly the same. Well, we could make a point to say, yeah, it's, it's most likely the same threat actor, but is it though? You know, and now let's, let's, let's 10 X that my company works 10 breaches and we see 10 very, you know, we, we see almost 10 identical. And then you, you work 10 breaches and you see 10 identical. That statistical comparison starts to drift apart a little bit further. And then if we go to a place where we're like, well, all of my 10 breaches were across financial firms and ICS. And Chris, all of your 10 breaches were across medical industry, or let's just say, you know, hospitals, healthcare or whatever. And uh, I don't know, transportation. Well, it just feels to us now like, well, they're not the same target. There's enough variation in the threat actor techniques. I'm MB1. You're over there with CL1. And eventually things just start to drift where it's the same threat actor. They're just like, oh, well, this person has, you know, this person has this antivirus. So I'm going to do that instead. Oh, that person has that. So I'm going to do that. Like it's the same keyboard. It's just our vantage point into that threat actor's activities has just grown so differently. And then to really throw a wrench in the engine, I'm done after this, I promise, <laughs> to really throw a wrench in the engine. Then for breach number 11, we see the opposite, right? You see everything I've seen and I see everything you've seen. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, wait a second. This looks a lot like what Chris's company is seeing. And you're like, this looks a lot like what I've been seeing. But you and I have already published a bunch of blog posts and released Yara rules and done webinars and created T-shirts and, <laughs> and, and booth swag yeah. promoting our group versus that one. So then there comes like that twisty tie point at the end where we have to say, oh, yeah, these threat groups are probably the same, most likely. And I'm exaggerating a lot of what happens in the threat intel world because I took away the idea of collaboration. Um Ideally, our companies would be collaborating and being like, hey, I think we have a cluster here that looks the same. Let's let's like convene and go to market on this and be like, I think we're seeing the same threat actor. Yeah. You know, when you and I talk about these massive law enforcement takedowns and whatnot, where we see multiple law enforcement agencies around the world come together, they will vacuum up all of that knowledge. And they're the ones who are like, okay, cool. Your cluster is this, Chris. Matt, your cluster is that. Guess what? We know it's the same person. So we're going to take everybody down at one time. And then when you read those reports and it's like, you know, FBI takedown of 17 different threat names, it's probably the same two groups. Yeah. But it's just the way that the information security world is gone that we don't end up with, let's all agree on a standard naming convention. It's... I saw something different than Chris did, so I can't call it the same, right? Anyways, nonetheless, uh, it's an interesting world out there. But for those of you listening who are like, how many hula hoops do I have to jump through to figure out who my threat actor is and whatnot? I'm going to ask the same question I always ask whenever I have this debate with somebody, which is, what does that data point matter to you, right? Oh, the threat actor got in. Well, is it an APT or is it a bear? It might be a spider. Does your <laughs> IR playbook written for bears or spiders or or APTs versus unks or 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 you know blizzards versus uh, sandstorms? No. Right? Our, our our IR playbooks are written against techniques, against threat actor, you know, adversarial activities and things like that. The only time where I'd argue and say that knowing who the exact threat group is is when you receive some preemptive knowledge 
and you're like, oh, this threat group is targeting other people in my industry or other people in my sector or my peers, let's get up and and, and start to look for how they work, build the defenses, all that stuff. Right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Because then knowing who the threat actor is can serve as a reference point, as a library. And then I can go like to MITRE ATT&CK and be like, hey, my peers are getting hit by the Sophocy group. What do I need to do to get ready for this, right? But if you're in the thick of it and you're that person who's in a conference room or you're in a SOC and it's, you know, two o'clock in the morning and you you start to raise a bunch of alarms and you wake everybody up, and everyone's like, all right, Matt, what you got? What'd you find? You're like, pretty sure this is Pond Storm. <laughs> that's it? Yeah. Like, that's the update? No. We're, we're, we're here to defend against adversarial techniques, regardless of names. The names are, are usually icing on the cake for a lot of SOC analysts. It's not the, the meat of it. Yeah, and the marketing teams, right? That too. <laughs> all right. So the department's court-authorized operation leveraged the MooBot malware to copy and delete stolen and malicious data and files from compromised routers. Additionally, in order to neutralize the GRU's access to the routers until victims can mitigate the compromise and reassert full control, the operation reversibly modified the router's firewall rules to block remote management access to the devices. And during the course of the operation, enabled temporary collection of non-content routing information that would expose GRU attempts to thwart the operation. I know we've talked about the implications and very strong feelings that some people have about the government coming onto your computer hardware to do this sort of stuff. Ultimately, I think this kind of action is a greater good, but I know it's a slippery slope. What, what is your take on it, Matt? Was this a successful thing and a, a thing that we should be supporting? I, I think so. I think so, 100%. Uh, this is one of those situations where I am of the opinion and I hope a lot of folks are as well, that there's a bunch of targets and victims out there who just, they, they, they don't have the ability to, to help themselves. And you can say whatever you want about cybersecurity, job shortages or technical capabilities or, or, or motivations or whatever and whatnot. I've, I've been in situations where I've, I've covered these things in depth uh, from like a legal review perspective. I, if I remember correctly, there was a, uh, I think it was a few years ago, there was a massive outlook vulnerability. And as part of their work and whatnot, the FBI hit a bunch of government servers and basically just, you know, either removed web shells or uh, patched, forced a patch on and whatnot. Let's just, Chris, let's assume a baseline here is that everyone is operating within their jurisdiction and is doing what they're supposed to do without violating any laws. Okay. That's, we have to operate on that premise, on that baseline. In that case, fantastic. I love it. If there's someone in some law enforcement place, FBI, Secret Service, Department of Justice, wherever it would be FBI activity, if someone in there is able to be like, hey guys, I wrote a script that will patch this thing. And if you give me a list of IPs, I can actually just run it against everybody and then we're all set and we're all done. Why not? Why not? You're you're in there working together. Now, of course, the the underlying premise is the most important one, which is that we're not, you know, having the FBI reach into private servers or private systems and things like that. And and I, I will quote, you called this out as well, court authorized operation, which means someone went through and did their due diligence and was like, yes, go and do this thing. And I'm a huge fan of when we see support like this, because I think these agencies should be working close together. I will, though, insert the contrarian view. We don't want to lean on this, right? The FBI is not your patch manager. <laughs> That's the important thing to be, to remember here is that agencies and government-owned you know, uh, systems or, or networks are still responsible for patching and taking care of themselves. But if there's a law enforcement agency 
that has the ability to operate at a scale and quickly neutralize something or neutralize a, a pretty large threat, I would go for it. And I, Chris, if, if we make this kinetic, it just absolutely makes sense. You know what I mean? If the, let's just take a police department who's, who knows about a bad neighborhood or a potential thing that's happening and whatnot. And, you know, let's just say there's, that there's, there's two neighborhoods that, that are, you know, potentially have some criminal activity going on, or there's something bad there, right? Their presence can positively influence that environment. Yeah. Right. If that makes sense. And they have enough people to do it. They have the resources to do this thing. Why wouldn't they? Right. Why wouldn't they? And I, I look at it kind of the same way where I'm like, if they have the resources and the capability to do it and they're within their jurisdiction, they're within their court allowed authority to do so, go for it do it you know it's not a violation of anything but the fbi is not your patch manager <laughs> that's i gotta say that enough 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 the fbi is not your patch manager might, might be a t-shirt <laughs> yeah there we go right i might oh, see that at defcon this yeah. upcoming year we'll see by the way speaking of which we'll see if defcon happens this year but that's another story yeah for that's a time. whole I've, I've actually been trying to get a hold of somebody at caesar's palace to to no no avail yet but uh, we'll see if i can drum something up there uh we got four Fingers minutes crossed. left do you want to try and burn through one more yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I don't want to skip out on any of this Intel stuff here. Let's go for it. We got one more. Okay. The last one I have for us today is coming from Security Week about the fine folks at CISA who are urging the patching of a Cisco ASA flaw, which is being used in ransomware. The vulnerability, tracked as CVE-2020-3259, affects Cisco's adaptive security appliance and firepower threat defense products. It can be exploited by a remote, unauthenticated attacker to obtain potentially sensitive information from an affected device's memory, including access credentials. The vulnerability can be exploited against devices that have any Connect SSL VPN feature enabled. The flaw was patched by Cisco in 2020, but it recently started making headlines after the cybersecurity firm TrueSec found evidence suggesting that it had been exploited by the Akira ransomware group. I find this one brings up a lot. It's an old CVE that in an ideal world would have been patched and gone from our collective memory. But here we are seeing this old and understood vulnerability causing massive damage. Is there a better way, Matt? How do we fix this? Patch, 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 patch. Uh, I, I hate to say it. I mean, Chris, as we're recording this episode in 2024, this is CVE 2020. I don't know where and when in 2020 it dropped. I didn't look that particular detail up. But I mean, again, this is just one of those situations where it's like, you know, we we we, we got a patch. Okay, May. I just looked it up. May of 2020 is when this dropped. So we're coming up on almost four years ago that it happened. It's just, it, it's it's got to be, it's got to be patched. It's got to be fixed. That's it. It's got to be patched. And and let's be clear, right? I, I want to insert a little bit of personal thought here, which it, it, I hope is true, but I'm not sure. But, you know, uh, CISA is, is, is advocating for this one. This isn't some threat report where someone did some analysis on Shodan and was like, hey, look what I found, right? It's bubbled up enough to the point where CISA is like, we need to address this. And I think that just should be a stark line of like, this thing isn't being taken care of. Because CISA has better things to do than be like, hey, small little niche subset of things, right? Uh, you might want to go patch. It is big enough that CISA is like, we, we need to make an advisory of this, right? We need to, I don't want to say codify it, but almost codify it and be like, well, CISA said it. Therefore, that level of authority has been established. And, and unfortunately, uh, they've got to be there. Patch, 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 folks. Uh, yeah. In four years, right, Chris? I want you to think about this <laughs> I know, the Four years. It's Four years without patching. Right. What what else 
has been missing, right? What else has not been taken care of? Because I know you and I have talked about Cisco before in the past six months, you know? So I think I remember when this vulnerability dropped and I think I remember it being actually a really big deal back then. And I'm surprised to see it come back up, but just patch, 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 patch. The interesting thing is, uh, the agency has instructed government agencies, so CISA has advised other agencies to address the vulnerability by March 7th. I'm hoping that's just an arbitrary time frame related <laughs> to when they dropped the announcement. Yeah. Not like a, it's probably like three weeks out yeah. or something. I like seeing that. I like seeing a date. I like seeing a deadline. So it's not just patch when you can. It's like, all right, you got to get it done. You got to get it done. You got to get it out there. And, uh, you know, it's time to patch up. One other little note here, Chris, and we'll finish after this one, is uh, May 2020, we were kind of getting into the heyday of COVID, if you remember. Uh, can you believe it was that long ago? Uh, we were getting into the heyday of, of COVID, and, and it's it does not surprise me that VPN devices were just being deployed in mass because everybody was moving to a, a remote or hybrid work environment. And I think this is probably going to be a long tail effect. Where, you know, it feels like, hey, four years they haven't passed. I'm like, well, remember what was happening <laughs> during that deployment time. Everybody was clamoring to get all these devices in. We're now seeing the long tail effects of what happened there. You know, this stuff was deployed. It served a purpose for a couple years. Maybe it hasn't anymore. But guess what? These vulnerable devices are still hanging out there in the wind, still likely being used by some agencies. And now it's time to patch and say, hey, guys, it's time to get a hold of some of that COVID free-for-all and uh, be a little less hazardous, a little more cautious. Awesome. Well, Matt, we're at time. Thank you so much for doing this again with me. I really enjoy having you here every week and uh, excited to see the community grow. It's always fun, Chris. Looking forward to it. And before we go, I'm just going to check really quick in our Intel channel. Did we by any chance get one? Okay, we're still at 499. Whoever hears this, come be number 500. I'm not going to volunteer Chris for anything, but there may be a t-shirt involved. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll get a t-shirt out. Just ping me. Okay, folks. Thank you so much. Awesome. Bye. Thanks, Chris. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.